Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. In this episode of the WBBM In-Depth Podcast... 14,000 soldiers killed by Russia. This is what we paid for our freedom. Freedom is not free. We'll check in briefly with Maria Klumchak. She's the curator of the Ukrainian National Museum located in Chicago's Ukrainian Village neighborhood before sitting down to a longer conversation with Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, Illinois Branch Vice President Pavla Bendrisky. The Ukrainians know what it's like to live under Russia's control, under control by Moscow, and they don't want that. Pavla will take WBBM further into details of the history of Ukrainian descendants in the Chicago area with over 200,000 people of Ukrainian heritage living in Illinois, the history of conflict between Ukraine and Russia, along with insight into the current state of affairs inside Ukraine, daily life. Even grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, in their late 70s and 80s, going through uh, basic uh, target uh, shooting and weapons handling and so forth. The type of outcome Ukraine would desire. The global implications if escalation were to continue between the two countries. We could be looking at a... Um, refugee situation somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven or eight million people. And what it is that Ukrainian immigrants and descendants living in the United States are asking from the American public and elected leaders, along with other types of cooperation Ukraine is seeking from the West. Pavla will also touch briefly on Ukraine's endangered indigenous population, people of color that have already experienced a period of genocide mid-20th century at Soviet hands. We, we think that it's very important for Americans to understand uh, that they have a role in stopping a, a, a global tragedy, stopping a, a massive loss of life, massive loss of uh, infrastructure and the like. I'm your host, WBBM News Radio anchor and reporter Brandon Eisen. We start off at the door of the Ukrainian National Museum in Chicago, where curator Maria Klimchak invites us in. And I am a curator for 20 years working here. Maria is part of what's considered the fourth wave of immigrants from Ukraine to the U.S., which we will go into that a little later on in this episode of WBBM In-Depth. But first, she has something she wants listeners to know. Ukraine is an independent country. 30 years ago, Ukraine proclaimed the independence without any blood. But so far, we paid too much. 14,000 soldiers killed by Russia. This is what we paid for our freedom. Freedom is not free. The 14,000 killed that she speaks of are those who have died fighting in conflict with Russia since 2014, beginning when former Ukrainian president, the pro-Russian Viktor Yanukovych, fled the country after months of civilian protest inside the country over his refusal to sign a trade agreement with the European Union. 
And now, with the prospect of Ukraine finalizing an agreement with the European Union at hand, Russian troops have amassed at the Ukrainian border, and the fear is the loss of many more lives as Ukrainians prepare to stand and fight for their country. In addition to her position at the museum, Maria hosts a local Ukrainian-language radio program where she interviews Ukrainian officials and journalists, citizens, basically anyone who can provide information from the ground. How they uh, survive through those panic, but actually it's not panic in Ukraine. They are very optimistic because this uh, our nation is very peaceful and optimistic. We hope we will win and uh, the young generations of Ukrainians who born after 1991, very strong, they never give up. She is also a mother, and she casually talks about her daughter's experience now as we ride the museum elevator to meet with our next guest. My daughter, she's a journalist. When we came to the United States, she was only three years old. And now um, uh, she changed her ticket for August, and this, um, like tomorrow, she has to be in Ukraine because um, her cousin called her to be godmother for, for the newborn baby. And she's very upset, and she's not talking only about, uh, like, family uh, event that, uh, or relationship, uh, this is why she said, I want to be there because if my mom and dad go, <laughs> this is my bridge to Ukraine. I have to take care of someone, you know. It's, it's not only because uh, uh, we concern about uh, Ukrainians in Ukraine, but this is also tragedy for whole family. Like, not all ocean didn't uh, uh, divide us, but Putin did. And with that, Maria leads us down a corridor to the Senator Dudich room, dedicated in honor of former Illinois State Senator Walter Dudich, the American-born son of third-wave Ukrainian immigrants, his mother a janitor, his father a factory worker. Again, we'll touch base on these immigration waves very soon as we begin our conversation with Pavla Bendrisky, Vice President, Illinois Branch of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, or UCCA. Hundred years old chair, you can sit there. It's our president. Well, Brandon, we have a large Ukrainian community here in uh, Chicago. We have in the state of Illinois some uh, 200,000 people of Ukrainian heritage. Uh, Many of them are immigrants like uh, Maria. And, uh, you know, they need to get the news as well. And she and, and uh, her fellow uh, correspondents do a great job of communicating directly to those people. But then we have people like myself and others who are born here in the United States uh, that need to keep their finger on the pulse as well. And we try to do that. Uh, we work uh, under an umbrella organization, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. Uh, we here in, uh, in Illinois have uh, a very active and large uh, uh, group uh, on our board of directors that's made up of both uh, people who were born in Ukraine and people born here in the United States that are very interested in um, promoting our culture, our tradition, our language, and also making sure that uh, both uh, uh, our lawmakers are familiar with uh, what's going on over there, as well as our American friends and neighbors. And uh, we've been doing this for a long time. The UCCA has been established since 1940 and we've had a 
branch here uh, under of the UCCA since the 70s. So we've been uh, very active uh, that entire period and, and even more so now. And before we get too much further in depth, Pavla shares just what it is that would constitute a win right now for Ukraine. The definition of uh, winning in this case would be that Ukraine maintains its uh, independence. It uh, retains territorial integrity and sovereignty and uh, that it's able to uh, uh, continue its uh, democratic path to the West. Um, as Maria uh, mentioned earlier, Ukraine renewed its independence 30 years ago. Ukraine, uh, last month we commemorated Ukrainian Unity Day, which was January 22nd, 1919. That's when Ukraine declared independence from the Russian Tsars and the uh, Russian Empire at that time. Unfortunately, uh, the Western uh, uh, countries, US and the European countries did not come to Ukraine's assistance at that time. And as a result, Ukraine wound up being under Moscow occupation for over 70 years, living the horrors of the communist regime. 10 million people starved to death during the genocide of 1932-33. Another 7 million soldiers killed on the uh, front with the uh, Nazis fighting the uh, the Nazis. Those were all Ukrainians that were uh, part of the Red Army, you know, uh, holding back uh, the, uh, uh, the Nazi terror. And uh, Ukraine has paid a very high price for, for all of that. He says if this war accelerates, that cost will greatly increase. We're not talking thousands or tens of thousands. We could be looking at hundreds of thousands of casualties that could come about as a result of this. The consequences of a further aggression here, we're talking about billions, if not trillions of dollars of damage to infrastructure, roads, bridges, dams, schools, hospitals, hydroelectric plants, all sorts of uh, uh, facilities that could be uh, severely damaged as a result of, uh, of the uh, potential invasion that, uh, that Russia has been threatening here on the border. So with that primer, Pavla says it should be understood that this conflict between Ukraine and Russia is not something new. And we can start to get into some of the history and how those details are affecting the country today, which will then lead to discussion on the global impact. Uh, yeah, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, there is a misunderstanding that uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine are on the uh, edge of war or there's a threat of war. Uh, quite frankly, there has been a war and it's been going on for eight years. Uh, back in uh, 2013, um, Ukraine was supposed to sign an association agreement with uh, the European Union, which had to do with trade and economic uh, um uh, arrangements and so forth so they could open up the markets uh, for export and, and, and the like. And instead, the then president uh, refused to do that. And uh, the Ukrainian people uh, were very upset about that decision. They were upset to the point where millions of them gathered uh, on the uh, square in the capital, in Kiev, and uh, in uh, many other regional capitals throughout the country. That led to the uh, Revolution of Dignity. And uh, a result of the Revolution of Dignity, the then president, uh, Yanukovych, wound up uh, fleeing to Russia. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Putin sent in the uh, Russian military to uh, illegally um, seize and occupy the Crimean Peninsula. 
Uh, and then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he again sent uh, uh, command and control troops and uh, officer corps into eastern provinces of Ukraine, what they call the Donbass, a formal heavily industrialized area with a lot of coal mines and factories, and uh, attempted to seize an entire crescent of uh, eastern territories uh, that edge along the Russian border. Um, in many of these uh, states, or what they call oblast in Ukraine, uh, his attempts failed. They failed blatantly. It, it failed in uh, uh, Dnipro, it failed in Kharkiv, it failed in Sumy, it failed in another places. Many of these places uh, were uh, either uh, primarily or heavily Russian-speaking, yet those people did not want to go under Russian occupation. Uh, and they fought, and they fought back uh, uh, very seriously, they blocked it. Uh, unfortunately, the blocking uh, wasn't as uh, successful in the Donbass, and uh, the Russian uh, military has been uh, fighting a war of aggression there. Uh, lately, uh, actually it's going back uh, now uh, nearly a year, Russia started to position strong uh, uh, military positions on the Ukrainian border with uh, threats of, uh, of invasion and uh, a lot of saber rattling and the like, and uh, had been uh, expanding uh, their uh, military presence there quite some time. Uh, you know, at one time they had uh, up to uh, 75, 80,000 uh, troops. Uh, it's now uh, more than doubled that, you know, uh, in terms of uh, actual uh, soldiers. Besides that, they have brought in very uh, uh, serious uh, equipment, tanks, uh, uh, helicopters, and missiles and the like. Uh, and uh, these aren't simple exercises. You know, this is a, a direct uh, uh, threat on uh, Ukraine's sovereignty. In addition to Russia's show of force at the border, there are other ways that Ukraine is being infiltrated and disrupted. Cybersecurity has and is and will continue to be a major concern. Uh, this week, uh, we heard reports that uh, uh, one of the largest uh, uh, cyber attacks in history was unleashed uh, uh, on Ukraine, attacking specifically uh, government sites and uh, the financial sector, banks. Uh, the Ukrainian National Bank has uh, been having an incredible amount of hacking attempts on a daily basis, somewhere in the neighborhood of hundreds of separate attacks that they are defending against. And uh, we've seen that uh, uh, Russian uh, hacking activities have hit the Baltic countries. I believe Estonia in particularly had been hit by those in the past and, and others have vulnerabilities. Uh, that is, uh, of severe attack, and it's one that's done without firing a physical shot or launching a, a missile, but it uh, is one that could create uh, uh, significant economic devastation and uh, and cause a lot of damage. So uh, Ukrainians are very vigilant on that. Uh, uh, fortunately, they have a very strong uh, IT uh, sector and a lot of gifted people that are working in those particular uh, spheres, uh, uh, developing defenses and monitoring them, but the uh, the attacks are relentless. They're nonstop. Pavlov says cyber attacks on governments and banks may conjure images of frustrated government officials and banker and business types. 
but he takes these kind of attacks down to the ground level with the real effects on individual Ukrainian citizens, like not having money in their bank accounts when they go to a grocery store. You know, uh, people get uh, their pay. Their pay is automatically deposited to their bank account. They need to pay for gas. We're in a winter uh, situation now. The gas bills come in. They have to heat their houses. They have to buy food. They need access uh, to their funds. And uh, with the tax and the financial systems, uh, it really shuts down the economy uh, uh, from top to bottom and bottomed up. You know, it's it's one where where everyone is affected by it uh, and to a large extent. He does make it clear, though, that while there are some things Ukraine would like to see in the form of assistance from Western powers, the country and its citizens are by no means helpless. And the sense among the people isn't necessarily a constant state of panic. Yeah, let me expand on that a little bit. All right. Uh, I have a little background in psychology in addition to economics. And uh, the human body cannot constantly live, the mind cannot constantly live in a state of agitation. Uh, They have to have some level of normalcy. You know, life still has to go on. They know there's a threat on the border, they know there's a war in the East, and yet people go to work every day. Kids go to school every day. Life goes on. now. That little boy that goes to school may have in the back of his mind, I hope mom and dad are still home when I get out of school. I hope my sister is still alive and, and you know, it hasn't been injured or, God forbid, killed, you know, by Russian invaders while I've been away. But they still need to have a life of normalcy. The one thing that has been very clear is that Ukrainians will resist. Ukrainians will defend their homeland. And Ukrainians have made this clear. Uh, through uh, two different governments, uh, two different presidential administrations in Ukraine, that uh, Ukrainians are prepared to defend their country. They are prepared to fight for democracy, not only democracy for the Ukrainian people, but quite frankly, for the West and the Euro-Atlantic democracy as well. Uh, The the, the Ukrainian people are doing a lot of civil defense training. Uh, in fact, uh, we've seen clips of, of uh, even grandmothers and grandfathers, you know, in their late 70s and 80s, going through uh, basic uh, target uh, uh, shooting and, and weapons handling and so forth. But uh, they do that with measure. They do that because they know they need to do certain things for preparation. When um, Russia initially invaded eight years ago, at that point the Ukrainian army was totally decimated. Uh, I think the uh, standing army was somewhere around 15,000 soldiers or less. And in terms of equipment, much of it had been sold, privatized, stolen or what have you because the president at that time had very close relations with uh, with Moscow and it was his uh, intention to make sure that uh, the country was not going to be put into a uh, uh, any kind of a threat position vis-a-vis Russia meaning defending itself since then since the invasion Ukraine has now grown to have one of the largest standing armies in all of Europe it has a larger army than the last 10 members who have joined NATO and what is specifically uh, uh, important right now is that Western allies and friends have stead, stood up 
tremendously. There has been a great supply of uh, both offensive and defensive weapons that have come in from the West, from Poland, from the Balts, from Great Britain, from the United States, uh, in order for them to be able to desert, uh, provide the adequate uh, defense for their country. Um, there's still obviously a need for, um, uh, for air defense. You know, uh, there's a certain vulnerability in terms of uh, missile attacks or air attacks and so forth. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a need to uh, step up with that. And uh, hopefully uh, the allies are working to, uh, to provide uh, some sort of uh, a shield program. Uh, uh, Israel was very successful with its Iron Dome in order to prevent, you know, the attacks from, uh, from the aggressors from the outside. And uh, Ukraine needs to have an Iron Dome type of uh, an air defense uh, program developed for itself as well. With that said, Pavla brings us back again to today where Russia has amassed nearly 200,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, and how that plays into Ukraine's progress in democracy and associating with the European Union. Well, I think uh, uh, it, it was more of a, a proactive aggression rather than a reactive aggression on the part of Russia. Uh, they know that Ukraine has aspirations to be part of the Western world. Uh, Ukrainians have lived under... Um, Moscow's domination for centuries and uh, they know what that life is like. They don't want that type of a life. And uh, Ukrainians made a conscious decision 30 years ago when they uh, voted by over 92 percent uh, to uh, separate from the Soviet Union. Uh, the Ukrainians also understand that uh, without NATO uh, there really isn't uh, any guarantee of uh, security of its of its country of its uh, independence and its territorial integrity. Uh, there have been uh, discussions and, and long-running discussions with uh, uh, NATO for quite some time. And the ironic thing about it is, you know, there are uh, there's a false narrative, uh, primarily coming out of Russia, saying that uh, if uh, Ukraine gives up its NATO aspirations, uh, then we will back off and live in a, a world of harmony and the like. And I say that's a false narrative because when uh, Russia attacked Ukraine and first invaded and then illegally occupied and captured Crimean Peninsula and, uh, and parts of the eastern regions, Ukraine was constitutionally neutral. In its constitution, it forbade joining military alliances such as NATO and others. It was declared a neutral country. So what Putin has done as a result of his aggression is he has united the majority of Ukrainian people to the point where uh, they agree NATO is essential for Ukraine's existence, and they baked it into the Constitution that uh, their aspiration is to become a member of NATO. All right, so now it's a constitutional thing. It's not simply simply, uh, simply a point that uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine can negotiate away at a table or any country, say Germany or France, can negotiate away on behalf of the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian people have voted for this. They know what life is like over there, and they know, thanks to journalists, the internet, travel, their family in the West, their ability to, to see what life is like in the West, they know 
and have made a conscious decision that their future is tied to the West, not backwards to the East. And when I was there during the revolution of dignity during the beginning, the one common refrain I heard from so many people, whether it was in Ukrainian language or even in Russian language was, we want to live like normal people. Like normal people doesn't sound to me like a very high aspiration, but to them it meant everything. They look at us, whatever troubles we may have here in the West and whatever divisions we might have in America, they look at us and say, you people have a normal life. You can build a future for your family, your, your, uh, your children, what have you. Uh, you could develop your careers, you could follow your dreams, you could do what it is that you can do in a democratic society. We know those possibilities are extremely severely limited living under a Moscow regime where we are part of some broad federation with Russia, and they don't want that. They want to live like normal people. If escalation continues, Pavlov says life in Ukraine will be far from its citizens' version of a desired normal, and the effects will have a significant ripple effect globally. With an escalation of, uh, of the war, you know, to the level that, uh, that has been uh, projected, you know, with, uh, with hardware moving in, with missiles being launched, and uh, the devastation that, uh, uh, that could happen, uh, with uh, a massive uh, incursion uh, by the Russian military into Ukraine, uh, it's projected we could be looking at a... Um, refugee situation somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven or eight million people. One of the things that uh, many people are not aware of is that uh, when, uh, when the East was invaded by Russia, uh, it created two million internal refugees, people who were uprooted from their homes, seeking uh, shelter and safety, but they were displaced within Ukraine. They either moved to Western Ukraine or Southern region or, or Central, uh, someplace away from where the actual fighting was going on. Two million people. Uh, the, the five to eight million that uh, we could potentially be talking about are going to be primarily uh, women and children. Uh, because uh, people are going to fight. They're going to resist. They want to make sure that their loved ones are safe, but they need to stay there and they need to fight and do what they need to do to protect the homeland. So there's a lot of concern about the humanitarian uh, crisis that could uh, result uh, as part of that. Um, an offshoot of, uh, of having such a large number of displaced people is Ukraine is a huge agri uh, agricultural exporter. A significant number of countries around the world rely uh, substantially or exclusively on uh, Ukrainian agricultural uh, products. And that type of massive uh, migration could lead to food shortages, could lead to starvation, could lead to significant problems uh, along those lines, which will again open up another dimension of uh, global crisis. And now, while touching on the topic of leaving Ukraine... Pavla gives a quick rundown on the historic waves of Ukrainian immigration, previously mentioned near the beginning of this episode of the WBBM In-Depth Podcast, and how those immigrants in various waves have settled into the local community. Uh, Ukrainians started immigrating to Chicago as early as the uh, late uh, 1800s. And uh, in the uh, beginning of the uh, 
20th century, already they were starting to settle in this particular area that we're located in now, known as the Ukrainian Village, which was officially designated by uh, the late Mayor Jane Byrne as Ukrainian Village. Uh, we have uh, two uh, cathedrals here, uh, Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral and a Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral, both of which have celebrated their 100th anniversary a number of years ago. Uh, and they're located right down the street here on uh, Oakley. Um, so Ukrainians started settling here, uh, what was uh, known as the uh, uh, first migration, and then uh, there was a, uh, a second migration which came in after the uh, First World War. Uh, the, uh, the largest immigration uh, uh, was after the Second World War, what they called the Third Wave. And uh, uh, many of them were people who came here with a, a hardworking uh, hard ethic, but uh, you know their language barriers and so forth made certain challenges in terms of what they can do and, and where they could find themselves here. So they went to work in a lot of the factories that were around here, uh, production and so forth, and uh, in, in various other uh, industries. Uh, uh, all the while uh, trying to uh, raise a family and give their uh, kids a better opportunity for, uh, for life here in the U.S. And then uh, we have what is uh, the latest wave of uh, uh, immigration, what is the fourth wave of immigration. And uh, that wave has come in uh, around the uh, beginning of the uh, 1990s, right around uh, the time that Ukraine declared uh, independence, roughly about 30 years ago, and uh, it had been continuing uh, for a period of time. These people are uh, much better educated. Many of them are in the professions. We've got people who uh, immigrated for Ukraine that have uh, completed medical school and are operating their own uh, uh, medical clinics or working in hospitals others who have completed law school and have gone uh, in that particular profession and uh, other uh, what could be considered uh, uh, more uh, white-collar positions. So uh, you've got uh, uh, a lot of people uh, here who have settled in uh, Illinois and specifically in Chicago that are a vibrant part of the uh, economic museum here. And now that Pavla Bandrisky has shared a great deal of history on long-standing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, desired outcomes, some possible global impacts, a small insight into the current state of civilian life in Ukraine, and brought the story here to Chicago where a large community of people with Ukrainian heritage live and work and go to school, raise families, and live their lives, both worried and hopeful of what may happen overseas. Bandrisky takes a moment to explain his organization and what it does for the Ukrainian community. Uh, the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, what we call the UCCA, uh, was formed in uh, 1940. It was formed because Ukrainians at that time realized that they needed to have an umbrella organization to unite uh, the people living here in the uh, diaspora. And uh, the UCCA is comprised of some 30 different uh, peak organizations. So 
you have youth organizations, women's groups, Ukrainian American veterans, and uh, and and so on and so forth, that uh, have their own specific areas of interest or uh, humanitarian activity or social cultural activity. Uh, they have all united under the umbrella of the uh, UCCA. Um, we've had an active branch of the UCCA here in uh, Illinois since the uh, 1970s. And uh, it is uh, a clearinghouse for information. Uh, it, our uh, primary objectives are to uh, uh, reinforce and share the Ukrainian culture, tradition, language, um, and our heritage, you know, with our uh, fellow Americans uh, to help promote uh, strong bilateral relations between the United States and uh, Ukraine. And uh, of course, to advocate uh, with our uh, lawmakers and legislatures on uh, issues that are important to us as Americans living as Ukrainians living in America. Pavla says that there's some important context that he feels compelled to share. It does relate to Chicago in Russia's occupation on Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula. It'll take him about three minutes to get through the short of it before sharing afterward what the UCCA is asking of United States citizens. There's one other thing I wouldn't just mention that really hasn't been picked up by uh, media in America at all. And uh, that is uh, the uh, plight of the um, uh, indigenous people in Crimea. Uh, when... Uh, Ukraine uh, had control of uh, the Crimean Peninsula. It was a nuclear-free zone. And that was because uh, Ukraine entered into the Budapest Memorandum Agreement, which gave it certain assurances of uh, security, independence, and territorial integrity. This was a document signed in 1994 by uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Russia, and Ukraine. Uh, those four parties entered this agreement in order to denuclearize Ukraine. At that time, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. In the interest of world peace, in the interest of denuclearization, they signed the deal, they got rid of their rockets, they got rid of their fusion material, they got rid of everything nuclear. Now that uh, Crimea is under Russian occupation, it's highly conceivable that it could become a nuclear area again from where rockets could be launched not only on our NATO partners and other countries in the uh, in the West but conceivably uh, into uh, our allies in the uh, Middle East and other areas that are going to be uh, within easy reach of uh, the nuclear uh, weapons that could be on the uh, Crimean Peninsula. The other thing is the Crimean Peninsula had been in um, inhabited for centuries by indigenous people, the Crimean Tatar people, who are people of color. And those people uh, underwent a genocidal action by Stalin back uh, during uh, uh, the 40s, where they were forcibly uh, emigrated moved out of their uh, territorial land on the Crimean Peninsula and uh, uh, taken to uh, parts of Asia, where tens of thousands, if not hundreds, uh, died uh, on the road and, and ultimately others while they were there. Uh, ultimately, they were allowed to come back and resettle into the traditional homeland. Uh, and they've been living there. They have their schools, they have their places of worship, they had their parliament, they had a, a, a vibrant growing community. Uh, when uh, the Russian occupation happened, they uh, 
closed down the parliament. They shut down their places of worship. They arrested the leaders. They have uh, killed and imprisoned uh, people of Crimean heritage. And uh, these people have been going through uh, uh, untold uh, horrors over there. And that also is a major tragedy that's going on in the world that uh, unfortunately hasn't been adequately covered in, uh, in the international press, let alone uh, the US press. And uh, we have a number of people here uh, of uh, Crimean heritage in Chicago. They uh, join us for uh, a number of our uh, events and occasions we have uh, uh, protests against uh, what's going on and so forth. Uh, many of them are uh, reluctant to, to speak out because they're intimidated uh, on behalf of their relatives that are still back there, that they feel are under great threat. If they were identified, there would be severe repercussions. You know, it, it harkens back to the, uh, the darkest days of the Soviet Union when people have to worry over here in uh, the West about what could be happening to their relatives uh, under occupation in the East. So the Crimean Tatars is also uh, a, you know, a, ver a very tragic and uh, uh, uncovered uh, uh, element of this whole situation as well. Pavlov tells me that he doesn't mind giving a free history lesson, but that there are very real and very serious global consequences in an escalated conflict between Ukraine and Russia and he does want to give information on how people in the U.S. can best become proactive if they feel compelled to do anything at all. We, we think that it's very important for Americans to understand uh, that they have a role in stopping a, a, a global tragedy, stopping a, a massive loss of life, massive loss of uh, infrastructure and the like. And uh, the best way to do that is contact your congressmen and the senators and let them know we want hard hitting sanctions now. We want sanctions that uh, are going to convince uh, Putin, his generals, the oligarchs that run uh, the Russian uh, Federation, that uh, a, a full bore invasion or any type of incursion into Ukraine is uh, not only a bad idea, but is something they should completely back off of. Two particular sanctions that I think we need to focus on. One is uh, disconnecting Russia from the uh, SWIFT uh, financial system. This would automatically disconnect uh, the Russian oligarchs and uh, the Russian economy from being able to move their money around, whether it's with Swiss banks or uh, banks in England or here in the United States, and uh, would have a severe economic impact on uh, the leadership of the country. And uh, we believe that uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline needs to have permanent sanctions installed on it. That pipeline was built to import Siberian uh, oil uh, into uh, Germany. And uh, if it was activated, it would provide billions of dollars of revenue for Russia to be able to f fund uh, their war machine and be able to continue with these type of uh, aggressive activities. And if we can uh, get those sanctions applied now, the net would greatly avoid the need for putting American boots on the ground in Ukraine. Ukraine heretofore has not asked for American soldiers. They said, give us the arms, give us the equipment, give us the intel, we'll fight the fight, but we need to have our Western allies support us. And right now, putting these sanctions in would be the greatest support that could help at this time. That's it for this episode of the WBBM In-Depth Podcast. You can get the latest information on Ukraine by listening to WBBM News Radio or linking up with us on social media. You can Google the letters WBBM before any topic that you're searching for to bring up our web articles. You can also go directly to the WBBM website. 
the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. Also a great resource. Their website is ucca.org. Thank you to Maria Klimchak for letting us into the Ukrainian National Museum in Chicago's Ukrainian Village neighborhood. And thanks to Pavla Bendrisky for joining us. I'm Brandon Eisen. I have been your host for this episode of the WBBM In-Depth Podcast. Pavla will take us out as we try and fit just 30 more seconds of information into this episode for you. It's not the Ukraine. All right. Uh, in fact, uh, Ukrainians find that uh, phraseology to be offensive and uh, a vestige of Russian imperialism because it's like saying the South, the Northwest, in other words, part of the empire. So uh, and, and it really uh, resonates uh, in, in English, if you will. So uh, is simply uh, Ukraine or Ukrainian, depending on uh, the context that you're using it for. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty-four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollars per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.